Forgiveness will set us free. So, Lord God, we ask that you would cause us to preach uh, the gospel and that you would set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 18 uh, begins with the disciples fighting over who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 15, Jesus says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. One hot August night in 1978, after a day of uh, jeeping with my church youth group, I floored the accelerator on my parents' orange VW bus and raced 20 miles an hour to the top of Jackass Hill on Jackass Hill Road in Littleton. I slammed on the brakes, I turned to my girlfriend and I said, I am so damned mad at you. I confronted her with her fault just like Matthew chapter 18 stipulates. But instead of repenting of her obvious sins, she turned and looked at me and said, well, I am so damn mad at you. And so the two of us sat there on Jackass Hill for hours, <laughs> crying and yelling as we unwrapped the sins of the day. The nearest that we could tell was that it started when I jumped out of the Jeep in which we were both writing, I jumped out in order to go goof off with some of my friends. Feeling insulted, then she switched vehicles from that vehicle to another vehicle, a truck. Not knowing she was there in that truck, and now needing a ride, I ran and I jumped into the back of that truck. Well, about halfway over the tailgate, the truck hit a bump, and like 2,000, 3,000 pounds of truck bounced up into a very sensitive spot on my body. I rolled into the bed of the truck, trying to act all cool and dignified on the outside, while inside I was walking through the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> Little did Susan know that the fruit of her very own womb was hanging in the balance at that moment. She just thought that I was ignoring her. At the next stop, I jumped out of the truck to go into the woods and weep alone having not even noticed that Susan was sitting in the front seat of the truck. Next thing I know, Susan is getting really friendly with David Weld, <laughs> the Patrick Swayze of our youth group. No kidding. Long blonde hair, tan washboard abs, and pensive. And so I retaliated. And then she took vengeance in return. All day, every glance, every gesture was like a weapon. Then even that night on Jackass Hill, confronting each other, according to Matthew chapter 18, it only got worse. I suppose we each could have called two or three witnesses or hired a, a counselor like Francis, but no matter what, I think we were destined for war. At times, at times like that, you know, it's awfully tempting to just give up, to just call it, call it, 
call it quits just to say it didn't work or to give up by growing a shell like around your heart to protect yourself from the pain of love. Like C.S. Lewis said, the only place safe from the danger of love is hell. So we sat on Jackass Hill, mightily tempted to hell. Or maybe even already kind of bound up in hell. To use the biblical word, Hades. We were tempted to isolation, darkness, and death, a, a living death. We were tempted to quit. And we almost quit. You know, I think we often do quit. Just when real love is about to happen because it hurts. We almost quit. Jonathan, Elizabeth, Becky, and Coleman almost didn't happen. Honeymoon vacations, long walks on the beach, romantic evenings, the best part of me, my favorite window into the heart of God almost didn't happen. And why? 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 Was it just a bump in the road? Was it a simple misunderstanding? Why couldn't we get past it? Why couldn't we just excuse it and go on? Why was it so frustrating and so painful and so hard? How do we understand the confusion? Well, we understand it with a sin and vengeance vector analysis diagram. <laughs> okay, do you see that? All right, there's Susan, there's me. Each of us has a certain amount of dignity in our dignity reservoir, which is roughly equivalent to our resume, our GPA, whatever we consider to be our accomplishments. Our dignity reservoir contains the life that we have made. For the sake of argument, let's assume that Susan and I each began that morning in 1978 with 100 dignity units in our respective dignity reservoirs. Every time you offend someone or sin against someone, you, you take some of their dignity. So the analysis, first thing that happened uh, was that I hopped out of the Jeep in which we were both traveling. I was inconsiderate. Now, so what, what is that? Uh, it's like a one dignity unit um, sin vector right there, one dignity unit. And so I take one dignity unit away from her 100 dignity units, leaving her with 99 dignity uh, units. Second, she felt a little bit empty at this point, so she retaliated by switching uh, vehicles. Uh, that's a, a, a one dignity unit um, vengeance vector, okay? Sin vectors and, and vengeance vectors. She tries to take one dignity. However, you don't subtract that from my um, 100 dignity units because I didn't even know she did it. And beside that, uh, human vengeance never really satisfies. Third, I encountered the tailgate and I ignored Susan. That's like taking three dignity units uh, away from, 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 from Susan. But in reality, I didn't know that she was there. So in other words, she could have excused what I did, but she didn't bother even finding out or asking why, because she was feeling a little low on dignity units and she didn't want to risk losing any more dignity units. So she retaliated looking for six dignity units, six dignity units. You say, how on earth did she get six dignity units? Well, that's easy. You take the three dignity units here and the one dignity 
dignity unit here, and then you add that to the one dignity unit she tried to take, and yet it didn't really stick, so that's like another dignity unit. And then, and, and then you add some interest for all the pain involved in that, and that's like six dignity units. You think, well, six dignity units? Where's, where, where's she going to find six dignity units? Well, the Warsport abs of David Weld. And I'm thinking, six dignity units? Holy crap, I could stand for two, maybe three, but six, that's, that's a dignity unit infraction, a DU, a DUI. And so now, now I retaliate even more, and she, she retaliates in return, every glance, every gesture. Uh, gesture. I mean, we're, we're like two ticks and no dog. We're looking for blood, drawing drawing blood and there's not enough blood. The sin, uh, the vengeance, it just keeps growing. And then on Jackass Hill, it gets even worse. Sin all over this place, especially when you consider the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You turn the other chick. See, we were just damned mad. Like I said, it was damned madness. We were like two bags of radioactive sin that had gotten too close to each other reached critical mass, and now nothing could stop the detonation. What I'm saying, it was not a simple misunderstanding. It was not a simple misunderstanding in, in, in which we could just uh, restore dignity with a little bit of communication. It was not simply a misunderstanding. It had become a dreadful understanding. We were not arguing over a poorly timed bump in the road. We were arguing over who it was that was greatest in the kingdom. It's easy to excuse a misunderstanding, but this was becoming a dreadful understanding that each of us was a tangled mass of self-centered, egocentric manipulations masked in a cloak of civility constrained by pride. We were bloodsuckers trying to fill our dignity reservoirs with the life of the other. <laughs> and a bump in the road just brought it out. A little offense detonated the bomb. And now our dignity reserves were just about down to zero. We each had about as much dignity now as a prostitute, a tax collector, or a Gentile. Next verse, 17. If he, the one who offended you, says Jesus refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, the ecclesia, those called together, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? Jesus gave his life for Gentiles and tax collectors. Next verse. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now, heaven doesn't always refer to the kingdom of heaven. St. Paul writes that we battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, the spiritual host of wickedness, wickedness in the heavenly, in heavenly places. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree, symphoneo, symphonize on earth about anything, 
anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered, sunago, sunago, make a synagogue. Wherever you synagogue in my name, there am I uh, among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. That is, Lord, when can I quit? How long does this forgiving go on? There must be limits to grace. For if there weren't limits to grace, well, God, that would be like the death of me. The death of me. Simon Peter is thinking, Lord, I only have so much dignity to give. During World War II, Simon Weisenthal was taken from a death camp to a makeshift army hospital where a nurse led him to the bedside of a young Nazi soldier. His name was Carl. Carl was 22 years old and his head was covered in bandages and pus. He was dying. The nurse left the room and Carl's hand groped for Simon's hand. When he found it, he grabbed hold and he told Simon that as a dying wish, he'd asked the nurse to find a Jew that he could confess to. So for hours, Carl or Simon confessed to, to Carl, and, or Carl confessed to Simon in, in excruciating detail how his unit had driven 200 Jews into a house and then set it on fire, and how he shot and murdered father, mother, and child as they would try to escape, and then he cried out, Oh God, I'll never forget it. It haunts me. When he finished, he said this, I know what I've told you is terrible, but in these long nights waiting for death, I've so longed to talk to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. I didn't know if there were any left. I know that what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without an answer, I cannot die in peace. And then there was a long, devastating silence until Simon made up his mind, stood up, turned around, and walked out of the room without saying a word. The debt was too much. Too much dignity had been taken. And by not forgiving, he hung on to at least a little bit of vengeance. And yet vengeance did not restore his dignity. Simon was haunted with his decision all of his life, trapped in his own prison of resentment. He was bound. In 1976, he published the book, The Sunflower, in which he tells a story and he invites 32 scholars to um, discuss it and analyze whether what he did was wrong or right. He asks in the book, but who was to forgive him? Who was to forgive Carl? I? Nobody had empowered me to do so. And now Simon Peter asks, Lord, how many times do I, do I forgive? Seven? Some of the rabbis said three, maybe four. But he said seven? Is it seven? Lord, you see, the Jews knew that forgiveness, well, it cost something. It costs at least the blood of a spotless lamb. Next verse, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, Simon, seven times, 
but 77 times, or 70 times seven, depending on how you translate it. But either way, the, the point is you must forgive without limit. Verse 23, he tells a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts. Uh, Sunari Lagon, literally reckon the word, settle accounts with his servants, his slaves, Dulon. Wherever you read servant, read slave, because that's what the word means. When he began to reckon, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, literally not having of him to pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring, literally worshiping him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, moved with compassion for him, the master of that servant released him, literally loosed him and forgave him, ephiami, it means allowed him, suffered him, let him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pray what, pay what you owe. So, so this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When, this, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master, his Lord, summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. Basinistes, it doesn't really mean jailer, it means tormentors. Until he should pay all his debt. So also, says Jesus, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. <coughs> what does that mean? Well, one thing is clear. Forgiveness really is like the unforgivable sin. Deliver us to the tormentors until he should pay. Deliver him to the tormentors until he should pay all his debt. Unforgiveness is blasphemy against the spirit, the spirit of grace. But that's kind of confusing, isn't it? Be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful, said Jesus. Did he mean be merciful or... Your heavenly father will not be merciful. Do we determine the character of God with our mistakes? Is the mercy of God dependent on us? Can you be forgiven and then unforgiven? Can Jesus be uncrucified by us? That's confusing. And so we'll circle back. But the story does explain why we find it so hard to forgive. It tells us that sin is a debt. Forgiveness is canceling the debt by absorbing the loss, and that hurts. I hear people say, well, that, that really hurt. I can't forgive that. That's inexcusable. Well, if it's excusable, it's not forgivable. Because if it's excusable, there's nothing to forgive. We excuse mistakes, but we must forgive sins. When I excuse, I say things like this. I thought, I thought you owed me a hundred denarii, but I was wrong. I was mistaken. I misunderstood. You don't. 
you're excused. It's precisely when something becomes inexcusable that it becomes forgivable. When I forgive, I say, oh, I understand. You flirted with Dave Weld to break my heart. And I forgive you. You, you do owe me 100 denarii. And I forgive you. I take your debt and I turn it into a gift. I absorb the loss of a hundred denarii by for giving you one hundred denarii. So do you see Simon Weisenthal's problem? If I forgive Carl, it takes more than I have. And I die. To forgive Carl is the death of what I call me, <laughs> myself, my dignity, my life. And yet, what has Simon's life become? Simon's life is now defined by Carl's sin against Simon. Simon's life has become a prison in which he's tormented by bitterness, resentment, and anger, and now even more tormented by Carl's request for mercy that burns. To forgive Carl is the death of me, thought Simon. Maybe forgiveness is always the death of me, somehow, in some way. In other words, it's a sacrifice. Well, Jesus' story involved more than just one slave and one other slave. It involved more than Simon and Carl. It involved more than Susan and me. It involved the, the king. The king forgives 10,000 talents. Now, scholars debate exactly how much a talent is, but we do know this from Josephus, the Jewish historian, and that is that the entire tax revenue of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea for one year, an area roughly the size of Israel, was 600 talents. And this guy's given, forgiven 10,000 talents. A hundred denarii was a hundred coins worth about a hundred days labor. So it was a chunk of change, but you could put it in your pocket. Just to carry 10,000 talents would literally take an army of thousands of soldiers. It would take an, an army because 10,000 talents, get this, is 710,000 pounds of gold. It's more than the entire tax revenue of the Roman Empire. And Jesus may have meant tens of thousands of talents. It's a number like 70 times 7. So the listeners are listening, and they must have just laughed out loud, like, what slave could ever incur a debt of 10,000 talents? That's a good question. And so I've wondered, maybe the debt was an illusion in the mind of the slave. So at the end of the story, uh, the slave is in a prison of his own making until he comes to realize that there's no debt. Job 41.11, God says this, who has first given to me, literally prevented me or betrayed me, that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. 
Romans 11, Paul quotes God in Job, writing, who has first given to him? Prodidomai, which can also be translated betrayed. Who has first betrayed him that he might be repaid or recompensed for from him, of him, to him, and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In other words, did you really reckon, O oh man, did you really think created being that you could enter into some sort of business relationship with the creator and change the creator's financial status? So could a slave incur a debt like this? I don't think so. So is the debt an illusion? Well, no. Why? Well, because number one, the king really forgives it. And number two, Jesus, who's telling the story and who is the truth, by the way, he says, he seems to say that the slave really has it, this debt. Gosh, the only way that a slave could incur a debt worth 10,000 talents would be to like take something from the king worth more than his entire kingdom. Like the life of his son. So, so maybe the slave really did incur the debt, for the slave took the life of the king's son. Now, that does sound kind of familiar, doesn't it? Maybe the listeners thought the idea absurd, but I don't think Jesus was laughing, because in nine chapters, some of these very people would take his life on a tree in a garden. In seven chapters, Jesus reveals the judgment, saying it's this. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. Do you see what that means? I, th I think it means this. Oh, we forgot someone in this picture. Let's put God in the picture. For every horizontal sin vector, there is also uh, something like a vertical component vector from, from, from God. So if I take one dignity unit from Susan on a Jeep trip, I take one dignity unit from the son of the king on a Jeep trip, and I owe, I owe him what, class? The, the measure I give is the measure I get, so maybe the measure I take is the measure he takes, right? I would owe him... One dignity unit, good math, yeah. I would owe him one dignity unit. Like he says, okay, Peter, that's one dignity unit, okay? But do you see the problem with that? I hope you see it. It's, it's hard to see how one dignity unit sin could incur like a 10,000 talent debt and result in endless debtor's prison or endless conscious torment by fire. Even if, even if, like Judas or Pilate or the Roman centurion, I actually physically murdered the king's son, it would seem that the king's punishment would be to murder me. Maybe with a little torment thrown in on the way just for, for interest. So how could one finite sin or any number of finite sins result in infinite torment in an endless prison? For obviously, this slave cannot pay a 10,000-talent debt, especially from prison. How does that make any sense? Well, in the 5th century AD, Augustine of Hippo 
the first real Roman theologian, a remarkable man, but unable to read New Testament Greek, Augustine argued that a finite sin against an infinite creator deserves an infinite punishment. In other words, what God really requires from me is like humongous. It's this infinite, infinite punishment, uh, infinite vengeance for a finite, a finite sin. Therefore, we all, even if it's just one dignity unit, incur endless conscious torment. So <clears throat> it works like this. You're a turd to your girlfriend on the church uh, Jeep trip. And God must get infinitely angry with you. And by the way, Augustine called that justice. He must get infinitely angry and torment you infinitely. Or for you, he might kill his only begotten infinite son. And because Jesus is infinite, his death satisfies God's justice, and so you're saved, according to, to Augustine. But not all can be saved, because then we couldn't explain endless torment in an endless de the debtor's prison, and then, God, and then Augustine says, and, and then, 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 then God couldn't be just. Now, there is so much in that, that that's, that's kind of true. And there's also so much in that that's really, really twisted. For, for number one, it's not really true that a finite sin against an infinite creator deserves an infinite punishment. In fact, Isaiah and Job say just the opposite. How arrogant of you to think that you, a created being, could merit anything good or bad from God. Or put it this way, if I stole 20 bucks from a seven-year-old kid that was saving his money to buy a bike for, on his birthday, well, that would be a pretty bad sin, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? 20 bucks from a seven-year-old kid? All... But if I stole 20 bucks from Donald Trump, wouldn't be a big deal. In fact, Donald Trump could really care less about the $20, and that's exactly Job's question for God. Why do you care about me? God, why do you torment me? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Why do you give a turd one way or another what I do? If I sin, what do I do to you, O Lord? Asked Job in chapter 7. So you see, a finite sin, I don't think, would deserve infinite retaliation. And if it did, wouldn't that mean that God is infinitely unsatisfied and infinitely angry and endlessly angry and then infinitely and forever not at peace? Well, anyway, the slave has a 10,000 talent debt, but it doesn't make sense that he incurred that 10,000 talent debt. He, he didn't make the debt. It doesn't make sense in this story that Jesus tells or the story that Jesus is about to live. Even, even when Judas Pilate and the Roman centurion take Jesus' life, do you remember what he says? Nobody takes my life from me. 
I lay it down freely of my own accord. And not only that, all of scripture makes it abundantly clear that Jesus not only gives his life, the Father in heaven gives Jesus and has arranged all things to do so on a tree in a garden. He gives Jesus so that we can see that we take Jesus. He gives Jesus so that we can see we take Jesus. And think about this story that Jesus told. The story starts with debt. From the very foundation of the story, there is debt. And no indication that the king blames the slave for the debt. This king isn't even angry about this 10,000 talent debt. He only gets angry when the slave refuses to forgive his brother a 100 denarii debt. And then check this out. This stupid slave thinks he can repay a 10,000 talent debt. For he says, have patience and I will repay it all. 10,000 talents. But he's a slave. Doesn't he know that? What's he going to repay it with? Everything that he reckons he owns, everything that he thinks he owns already belongs to the master. He has nothing to earn 10,000 talents with. He has nothing to earn one denarii with. For he himself belongs to the master. Even the slave that owes him 100 denarii doesn't actually owe him, but owes who? The master, right? If you know you're a slave of the master, no one can actually sin against you. They can only sin against your master. And so King David writes, against you and against you alone have I sinned, O Lord. So the slave reckons he thinks he can pay off the debt, but the king knows that he cannot pay off the debt. The king thinks that the slave is the debt. The slave thinks he can pay what is owed. The king thinks the slave is what is owed. Listen closely, Matthew 18, 25. And not having of him to pay, the Lord ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had, his, his life, and payment to be made. Payment, the verb means to be accomplished, the payment to be accomplished. The slave doesn't have 10,000 talents. The king reckons that this slave is worth 10,000 talents. What slave was ever worth the entire revenue of the entire Roman Empire? Well, what if this slave is the son of the king? And, and if that doesn't work, what if the son of the king is in the slave? Or what if this son of the king doesn't truly know he's a son of the king and doesn't know that he contains the very lifeblood of the king in his own veins? So when he gives his brother 100 denarii, he demands it back, not knowing that they are both sons of the king. Jesus says, that's what it's like when you don't forgive your brother from your heart. The heart that pumps the blood 
The life is in the blood. Jesus seemed to reckon that we are all children of one father. He said, pray our father. He seemed to reckon that we're all children of one father who share one life and he is the life. You know, whatever scripture is confusing, I find it incredibly helpful to take it literally. For lack of a better word, literally. Jesus said, Jesus said this, I am the life. And Paul wrote, the spirit, the breath, is the life, is life. And, and on the sixth day of creation, which is this day, for we are still being created, on the sixth day of creation, God spirited, he breathed his life into the clay, and man became a living being, a soul. Nefesh in Hebrew, psyche in Greek. You, you contain the neshama, the breath of God. Did you know that? You contain the life. And God gladly gave you that life, his own life. And, and so you are worth far more than 10,000 talents. You contain the very life of God. But as soon as you think you create that life, save that life, redeem that life, as soon as you think to yourself, <laughs> my life, and you hang on to that life, you confess, I stole the life. And who is the life? Jesus said, I am the life. So you have a psyche, an earthen vessel, your life, so to speak. You have a psyche, but you contain the zoe in Greek, the life. You contain God's life. Jesus is the Zoe, the life. We, we broke Jesus' earthen vessel on a tree in a garden, and he gave his life, the life. The spirit is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The spirit is in the blood. The breath, think about your own body. The breath, the oxygen is in the blood. It's easily worth 10,000 talents. So as soon as you think, my life, you take the life, Jesus' life. But, but when did God, our Father, give the life? Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That's the very start of the story. Do you see what that means? That means that the cross is the revelation of a transaction that somehow upholds all space and time and has always given you life. But at the cross, you come to know the life as you watch your father reckon the word, the account, as you watch God forgive you 10,000 talents as Jesus, the word of God, sacrifices his soul and delivers up his spirit, the very spirit with which you are being created. So maybe the slave didn't incur the debt or earn the debt because he didn't create himself. The king created him. How? With his word. Maybe the slave didn't create the debt because long before he could take the life, the king had given the life. But when the king reckoned the word, 
who is life, when the king reckoned the word on the cross in 33 AD, he revealed his account. And the slaves saw that the king had a right to life, a right to his life. And so he offered to pay for his life, and the king said, I give you your life. <laughs> You're free. That's the reckoning, the eternal account. Understand? You have always been created and sustained by grace. You have always been created by grace, but at the cross, God reveals grace. God reveals grace and God creates faith in grace in you. God is grace. Once you trust grace, you're free. Free to what? Free to love. And uh, love is, well, loving, like we've talked about, is to enter life, but not life that comes and goes, eternal life, like a river of life. In other words, you are forgiven, a me, you are suffered, you are allowed, you are forgiven the 10,000 talents of the kingdom. So then if that's true, why wouldn't you forgive a few thousand bucks when your brother borrows it and doesn't give it back? Well, clearly, if you don't forgive your brother, it's because you don't really believe that you are forgiven your life and that your life is valued at 10,000 talents. I mean, if I really believe that, not just in my head, but down in my heart, that I was worth 10,000 talents, if I really believe that God looked at me every morning and he said, oh, I would gladly give my life for him. I'd have so much dignity in my tank that Susan could take 100 dignity units. And I might be a little concerned for her that she would do that, but she could take 100, and I would forgive the dignity units as soon as she took them. She might even take my life, but I'd gladly give my life. I'd present myself a living sacrifice. I'd know that even as I gave my life or gave his life, there is always more life, like, like a, a literal river of eternal life. But, but, but if I held on to the life as if it were my own private possession, what would happen? Well, I would, like a reservoir, I would damn the life. And I would damn me. I'd even damn Jesus in me, imprisoned in what? My dignity reservoir, my own damn life, my psyche. You get the picture? It's like we literally are the body of Christ and individually members thereof. We're vessels, but not to be closed vessels, but to be open vessels like blood vessels. The spirit is the life and the life, the breath, is in the blood. If you hold on to your life, the life dies. But if you lose your life, you find it. When you bleed out, the heart pumps more in. Life is a river that circulates through all the members of the body. When you refuse to forgive the life, it's because you do not truly believe that you are constantly forgiven the life. So you hang on to the life, damn the life, damn Jesus in a prison that is your own damn life, your psyche, your ridiculous dignity reservoir. The Lord says, deliver him to the tormentors. See, I think he's already in prison. The unforgiving slave is already in a prison that's called his own psyche, his pride. Deliver him to the tormentors. And I'm not just saying this as a theory, but, but I know this. 
if you refuse to forgive, you can expect to be tormented by demons. And Jesus himself may feel like torment. In other words, when you reject grace, grace will burn. Deliver him to the tormentors until, until, until he pays his debt. And what is his debt? 10,000 talents. His debt is his life. His debt is the life trapped within himself. You know, unless you lose your life, you can't find it. We all must lose our life to find it. People trapped in Hades are people trapped in death because they're too terrified to die. They're too terrified to lose their life because they think they created the life. Uh, they're too terrified to forgive because they do not know that they are constantly forgiven. They're terrified to surrender the spirit, so they hang on to the spirit. <gasps> they blaspheme the spirit, <gasps> but they must surrender the spirit. They must expire in order to inspire. They must uh, forgive for unforgiveness is unforgivable. They must lose themselves to find themselves. They must die. And Jesus came to help us die. He is the death of death. He even descends into Hades. He's the death of Hades. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the perfect servant. Jesus is the ultimate eschatos, Adam. When he died, we all died in him. And when we rise, we all rise with him. We are his body. So when Jesus humbled himself and rode a jackass up the hill that we call Mount Zion, like Abraham and Isaac rode a jackass up that very same hill 2,000 years before to offer their own lives. When Jesus rode up the hill to sacrifice his life in the garden on the tree, he returned the fruit to the tree. He, he, he returned the life of God to God. He returned the blood to the heart, to the, to the temple. He lifted his head and delivered up the spirit, the spirit that God had breathed into humanity, into Adam. He died so all could live. He expired so all could inspire and then expire and then inspire and then expire and inspire and, and expire. The father forgave the life. It's an eternal river of life and it flows through your veins when you forgive. And believe that you are forgiven. For ultimately they're the same thing. One Sunday morning. About three years ago. I was preaching from Ephesians 2. <coughs> and uh, my friend Michael was listening. Ephesians reads like this. For he himself is our peace. That he might create in himself. One new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Michael said that as he was sitting there, he heard the, the Lord say to him, read it again. So he picked up the pew Bible that we have and he read it again. And then he heard the Lord say, read it again. And he picked it up and he read it again. He said, read it again. He said, I don't know how many times that happened, but he kept telling me, read it again. And I kept reading it again. And then Michael writes this. I'm just going to read you what he sent me. He writes, then I was transported. 
I was no longer in the sanctuary. I was in heaven standing in front of Jesus crucified. He was right there in front of me, his body broken, bloodied, and bruised. Jesus was nailed to the tree in front of him. He writes, it was beautiful. A voice cried out, go ahead. You know what to do. Go get him. Go on now. They're waiting. At that moment, a certainty came over me that I'd never felt before. I knew exactly what to do. An indiscernible elation overwhelmed me and filled me with a confidence I'd never known. It was the joy of anticipation. I walked around the left side of the crucifix, and as I walked past Jesus, the back side of the crucifix was dark. There was no light, only sadness, misery, loneliness, and hatred. Though I saw it, I felt none of it. All I felt was strength and the joy of love. Then I reached out my hand and I said, come, take my hand, it's gonna be okay. Standing before me was my enemy. Shaking, scared, and hesitant. It's okay, I said. Come on, take my hand, we'll go there together. They're waiting for you, it's so beautiful, you will love it. My enemy reached out his hand I grabbed it, turned away from him, and I walked forward, holding on tight, not looking back, just walking straight, strong, and true. I felt my enemy's reluctance. I knew he wasn't sure, but I said nothing. I just kept walking. It was a short distance, but it seemed to take a, a while. Then as with a leap, we jumped through the body of Christ, Christ crucified on the tree, right through his body, blood and all. I pulled my enemy through Christ himself. It was a wicked feeling, a beautiful, wicked feeling. I felt all the pain and suffering, not his pain and suffering, but mine and my friends. Or I mean, my enemies. It all happened so fast. It was a beautiful cleansing renewal and a feeling of unbelievable joy. I had been given the gift to deliver my new friend, who was my enemy, from the bowels of hell. All he had to do was take my hand. You know that feeling you have when your bride says, I do? Or when your child says, I love you? Or your dad gives you that hug or you accept Jesus into your life? It was kind of like all of those things wrapped into one. And I got to share this with the person I hated most, the, the person who hated me. What a feeling. What a joyous feeling. What a gift the Father had given me. The most blessed feeling Ever. Then to hug my friend, who was my enemy, release his hand and watch him walk into heaven, his home, to see him home at last and to know that I got to bring him there. Thank you, Father. And then Michael writes this. Then he said, go ahead, do it again. And Michael did. At the time, I had been meeting with Michael because he had just struggled with some immense pain he had been delivered some very unjust blows in my mind by several enemies who had truly taken his life. And yet think about this. If they hadn't taken his life, he wouldn't have experienced the ecstasy of giving the life, Christ's life, eternal life. He writes, I can't recall how many times I got to do this, but it was so much fun. I loved everything about it. Then I was pulled back to the sanctuary, and Peter was blessing the body and the blood. So Susan and I were stuck on Jackass Hill. The sun was going down on our anger, and our anger was only growing. 
Each confrontation made it worse, for we demanded payment. So each I'm sorry had to be at least as painful as the original offense. So most of the I'm sorry's were just weapons of vengeance. We were in tormented. Tormented by what? Tormented by loneliness and tormented, uh, terrified of, of real communion. Then, then finally in desperation and by grace, we saw what was needed. And for the first time in our relationship, I reached out my hand, grabbed Susan's hand, and we actually prayed to a king who gave absolutely everything for a 16-year-old self-centered boy and a 16-year-old self-centered girl. And when we did, we began to see the glory of God. You know, dignity really isn't a Bible word. It's hard to find in the Bible, but glory is like everywhere. Jesus reveals the glory of God. It's a mystery in the Old Testament, but it's revealed at the cross. It is a relentless river of life that flows from a throne upon which stands a slaughtered lamb. I do not possess that river but that river possesses me. I do not possess the glory, and yet God freely gives the glory. The glory isn't taking. The glory is giving. The river flows in the opposite direction of this entire world, and particularly in the opposite direction of my ego. And so what happens? He reverses the flow. Where I take, he shows me that he freely gives a river of eternal life. It flows into me. It fills me. And what does it do? It just bursts this dam right here. It bursts. It destroys my psyche. Uh, I die, and then I begin to live. The river, the river is the justice of God. The, the river is the vengeance of God. Read Isaiah. The river is the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Grace is the wrath of God. It flows into my psyche. It bursts open my psyche. I'm forgiven, and I begin to forgive. I forgive Susan. It flows into her psyche, bursts her psyche, and then she gives praise back to God, thanksgiving, worship back to God for his mercy. And then God shows, throws us mercy upon Susan and flows from her into me and then back into God. This river that keeps flowing, endlessly flowing, that's always existed. It's always there. We've just entered the river or the river has swept us away. And what are we? We are two people. Sinago Ecclesia gathered together and he is in our midst. We are three people, one substance. And what is the substance? Well, the substance is the life. We are a body. And Jackass Hill turns into Mount Calvary. And Mount Calvary turns into Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is the city of the living God. And so we prayed. She gave me a kiss. And we were free.
And on the night that we all made him our enemy, the glory of God took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And he took the cup, saying, this is the life. The life is in the blood. He took this cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of many. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So close your eyes and ask the king, is there someone I need to forgive? If you're like me, there, there are probably some people you need to just keep forgiven every morning, right? This is how you destroy the works of the devil. Right now, I want you to say this in, in your heart. Just say, in, in the name of Jesus, under the authority of the blood, by the power of the blood, I forgive and then say their name. The dark cups are wine. The light cups are juice. They're both the river. <laughs> 